How's everybody doing this morning? Man, it's bright in here. Real mood killer, isn't it? <laughs> That's all right. I had a surgery this week that was also a real mood killer. <laughs> I got a reversal. <laughs> I wasn't planning on saying that. Sorry, babe. <laughs> anyway, it's okay to smile. Great. Well, this morning I'm going to be sharing out of a story called, uh, that we know very, very well, called The Rich Young Ruler. And uh, I want to challenge us this morning as Andy has sort of uh, jump-started us into a series about, a series about becoming like Christ. Um, there was kind of a few things in this passage that have really stood out to me that are maybe pertain to us as a church and, and to the culture that we live in that I think are important to consider because it's very easy for us to assume that because we're Christians and we're a part of a local church and we're, you know, here and we're diligent, that, um, that we're doing okay. And sometimes God wants to highlight things to us, not to embarrass us and expose us, but simply because he wants to liberate us to step into what he has for us. There's this um, incredible story uh, in a book called The Great Divorce, written by C.S. Lewis. And, and in this book, all these people are sort of journeying independently uh, with a dedicated angel towards heaven. And, um, but they're not as uh, complete as you would think on this journey. They are sort of still working out some of their isms and stuff. And, and so part of this picture is this, is this man who is crouched over, and he has this red lizard sitting on his shoulder. And, and this angel keeps saying to him, can I, can I kill it? It's evident that this red lizard is having a serious effect on this, on this uh, man. And uh, he, the man is convening with it. He's irritated by it. And, and so the guy says, can I kill it? And he says, well, sure, you could kill it. And he says, can I kill it now? And the guy says, oh, you didn't say right now. You know, I, I should get maybe a second opinion from a doctor. And, and I think we should wait on this. And he says, no, but can I kill it now? This is the moment for this to happen. Can I kill it now? And there's this sort of like back and forth rhetoric going on where eventually the man says, okay, fine, do what you must. You can kill it. And the story goes that this, this sort of assigned angel strikes this lizard, which falls to the ground. And immediately as this lizard falls to the ground, this man begins to grow into the frame that he was designed to grow in. And as he grows into this frame, C.S. Lewis writes that he stopped watching the man because what started to happen was the, with the lizard was even more intriguing is that the lizard slowly began to grow. And as the lizard began to grow, it says that its legs shot out and it just sort of filled out and it turned into a stallion. And what happens next is the man jumps onto this stallion and rides off into the sunset. And I think the picture is a powerful one. Because I feel like what God wants to challenge in us is that he call, he's calling us to let go of the things that have taken hold of us. And the important takeaway for this story with me, when I think about this, is that so many of the amazing things that God has put in our lives are things that are like lizards on our shoulders. And until we let go of that which has held us, they won't turn into the stallion. 
and become the thing that God has called us to use them for. Get, get what I'm saying? Uh, so we're going to go through the story of the rich young ruler. I'm going to do a combination of standing and sitting. But this story you can find in all three of these synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic just means that basically that the stories and the layout of these three gospels is very similar. And so you'll find the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And we'll sort of be reading from Mark and a little bit from Luke. But why don't you turn with me to Mark 10, and we'll start. And the story picks up in verse 17. And it says this, as Jesus started on his way... A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. You know, the the context of the story is Jesus is about to leave and head towards Jericho. This is sort of part of where also the triumphal entry is beginning, this sort of time frame. And so there's this moment where this rich young ruler throws himself at the feet of Jesus as sort of his last moment in time. This is the moment. This is the, there's an urgency, there's a, there's a humility, right? He's thrown himself on the ground. Um, and there seems to be a, a bit of an earnestness in him as he approaches Jesus with this question. And he says this, good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Amazing. Amazing that someone could stand there and be confident that he's kept all of these things since he was a boy. But what we have here is an earnest young man. Earnest because he was wealthy. There was obviously some intention in his life. There was obviously some, some follow-through. Um, you know, there's probably intention even in regards to spiritual matters. He was in person that was probably entrusted uh, in, in terms of like governance in his community. He was probably sought after, a ruler. And my question for us this morning is we all probably know people like this. When you think about it, we all know the people that seem to be worthy of everybody's praise, right? We know the people that seem to be like above reproach in every sense. It's like they just know how to, like, they're very diplomatic. They just know how to wheel and deal in every situation. Nobody dislikes them, right? And so we have this man that I would assume everybody loves. Oh, that's the guy, you know, he's the... He oversees that charity thing, and he's involved in the synagogue. He's, you know, probably very um, charismatic, probably all these different things. But what we find is very interesting is that this is one of the few encounters that Jesus has with religious people where the man actually seems to be sincere in his question. He's not coming at him saying, tell me, Jesus, here's a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Should we stone her according to the law of Moses? Or... Why are your disciples eating the grain? Why are they plucking the grain on the Sabbath? Right? We have all these examples of of situations where religious people are trying to take what Jesus is saying and doing, which is his own mission, uh, totally independent of a political agenda, totally independent of a religious agenda, and, and Jesus is coming to establish something totally different. And yet we have two sides of the party that are constantly trying to pull Jesus either to a political or religious bent, 
if you will. And I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, I was thinking about this, this show back in the day, Prison Break. It was, you know, if you ever saw it, it was maybe a 15-year-old show. But it was like this crate. I remember the preview comes out, and this guy's tattooed the entire prison um, layout on his body. And it's like he's planning this big breakout so that he can get his brother out who's been wrongfully accused of something. And I remember the climax of the story. And it's like they finally have this elaborate plan. They, they, they get in with one of the prisoners. You know, there's some love intertwined, I'm sure, and all these types of things. And they finally break out of the prison. And then guess what happens? There's a preview for season two. <laughs> but this is exactly what happens in our culture. And then all of a sudden we find out that the brother wasn't just accused because he was framed for something, but it was connected to some big scandal. And that scandal was connected maybe to someone in the Soviet Union who knew someone who was Russian, who was part of the mafia. And all of a sudden there's a political agenda that happens. Why? Because this is how we keep the viewer's attention. And so naturally the story is always unfolding where something happens. And this is a lot of the shows we watch. Something happens where it gets elevated and it gets elevated. Why? Until it reaches the pinnacle. Maybe it's political agenda. Right? We've all seen these shows? Just me? Okay. But there's something that these shows always do that I think is incredibly inaccurate of what Scripture teaches us. Because what we find in these shows is that there is a, an image of someone who is good and there's an image of someone who is bad. And the thrust of these types of shows is that there are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world. And if the good people can overcome the bad people, then goodness will reign forever. Right? Come on. We've all seen these. Listen to this. Alexander Azevich, with a last name I cannot pronounce. He was a Soviet and Russian novelist. And it was through his writings that he helped to make the world aware of the Gulag, which was the Soviet Union's forced labor camp, which had 18-plus million people imprisoned through an evil dictatorship. But this is what he says. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Now, there's this constant collision course between biblical truth and humanism. The Bible tells us there is no one good, not even one. It also tells us in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know its ways? But this rich young ruler seems to be unaware of all these things. His question to Jesus is, how can I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think I would ask us this question because I'm asking myself this question. Are you a rich young ruler? Am I a rich young ruler? Am I someone who feels like I've done everything right, but I know there's something still missing? Do you feel that way? Because I think sometimes we, we do feel this way. Maybe often we feel this way, but we don't pinpoint it. Instead, we can sort of get into the mentality of put up and shut up, right? Or push through, right? Or just be overwhelmed. 
And I can, I'll never achieve this, I'll never do this, all these kinds of things. But I think we have this amazing picture of a rich young ruler who throws himself at the feet of Jesus because even though he feels like he's done everything right, there's still something missing. And so Jesus begins this incredible dialogue with this man, which is a very simple one. And he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't, he doesn't sit around with flowery words. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? How many Christians do we know who say, you're a, oh, they're a really good person. Oh, they're a really, they're not a very good person. <laughs> we do, we measure all the time like this. But Jesus is saying to this man, why do you call me good? Now, is he un- undoing his divinity? Is he saying, no, I, you, know, I'm, I, you know, I am fully God, but I'm also fully man and I'm sinful, just like you. He's not saying that. He's, he's simply saying to this guy, look, you haven't met me from a hole in the wall. You don't know anything about me. You just know that I'm some sort of rabbi teacher. And because of that, you are calling me good. As if you understand what goodness is. And this, this is so incredibly important for us as Christians because what's happening here is Jesus is saying to him, unless I deconstruct this scale of measurement, you will always find yourself on the tightrope of comparison. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, for spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. I imagine this man had done a fair bit of gobbling poison without even realizing it. And my question for us is, how much poison are we gobbling? On this journey of becoming like Christ, how much poison are we gobbling? How many things are we doing to try and become more like him in our own effort, in our own strength? Measuring ourselves by a standard that he, even he doesn't hold us to. The rich young ruler, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. All these commands that you have just told me. These important commands I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't even deny him. He doesn't say, uh, uh. You know, if your kids tell you like, like, oh, I did it. I, I never, I obeyed everything to the T. You think, ah. Uh. Right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Some of you have old kids or no kids, if you didn't get a response for that. All these I have kept since I was a boy. The thing is, that might have been true. Right? That might have been true. If if he was being measured according to the Judaic law, it might have been true. Why? Because all of those laws were simply external laws. Don't murder. Don't, you know, don't commit adultery. They, they were all acts of the outside. But, but I, I'm assuming this man wasn't at the Sermon of the Mount. I'm assuming. Right? You, I, you know, murder is wrong, yes. But if you even hold anger in your heart, if you even hold hatred, you actually have committed murder. Right? If you have even looked at a woman and thought impure things, even if you didn't act on it, even if it didn't lead to any sort of external action, if you have just had the thoughts, you've broken that law. The passage goes on. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, 
And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. It's a very interesting reaction we see here. You know, I've always, I've always looked at the rich young ruler's reaction and thought he went away sad, right? He went away sad. It's a story we know very well. But it's also the disciples' reaction that tells us something. Because they were actually followers of Jesus, right? Their intention and their heart in this space was that we want to we wanna follow this man. We want to become like this man. We, we want to, like he's doing amazing things. We want to follow in his footsteps. And yet, when the rich young ruler is turned away, the disciples are distraught as well. Who then can be saved? It's like, in today's day and age, you know, uh, we, wealth for us is not necessarily, uh, we wouldn't necessarily always consider it a God blessing, right? Wealth in our society, when you think about, like, when you look at, like, rich political leaders, you think, okay, who did you have to step on to get that thing, right? You know, the, the joke, one of the jokes in our culture is, like, if you rocked up in a nice car, or if you rocked up in a nice outfit or a nice pair of shoes, someone might say to you, like, oh, who did you have to kill to get those, Right? The, the idea that, that wealth can come from ill-gotten gain or wealth can come because you've stepped on others. Rich people can get rich because poor people get poorer. Right? But in that day and age, it was actually flipped. In that day and age, if you were wealthy, that was considered like God had blessed you. And the reason he had blessed you is because you had done really good deeds. Maybe you're a really pure person. Maybe you had really looked out for others. And because of all those things, there's no denying the fact that your wealth speaks to your goodness. And so the disciples are seeing a man who is clearly blessed by God, yet at the same way walks away sad. It's like, oh, what does it mean? What does it mean that a camel goes through the eye of a needle? I don't know if you, if you grew up in the church, you heard all sorts of things. Oh, there was this gate in Jerusalem that was narrow. And, you know, if your camel had too many things on it, maybe you offload a few things. You know, like live with just enough. Get through the gate. <laughs> right? All these things. Oh, it was a word, a camel that actually rhymed with something else. And it was actually this. And, you know. But I think what Jesus is saying is that it's really hard impossible for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. That's a sobering thought. Isn't it? Jesus continues on his gentle interrogation. 
But he's saying to this man, have you ever defrauded someone? He obviously knows, okay, this rich young ruler, he's a businessman, he's, you know, so he's, his, his questions are strategic. Have you ever defrauded someone? Have you, have you taken something that was not yours and taken it for yourself from someone else? And his answer is no, I haven't, you know. Basically what he's saying is, look, my wealth, I've come by it honestly. And under his breath, maybe he said, and I think my wealth speaks to that God knows that I've been amazing in my dealings. <laughs> Amen. Andrew Walls, a distinguished historian of world Christianity, noted that the center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. And he was asked, why does this happen? If the centers of other religions remain constant, why does the center of Christianity constantly change? And Walls replied, one must conclude, I think, that there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. And you might say that this is the vulnerability of the cross. The heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is Jesus saying rich people are good and poor people are bad? I've met plenty of bad poor people and plenty of good rich people. You? (laughs) It's like such an awkward conversation. But I don't think Jesus is saying that if you're rich, you're bad, and if you're poor, you're, you're good. I think he's saying that there's something radically wrong with every single one of us. But power has a un- but money has a unique power to blind us to it. Think about how we measure ourselves in culture. It's so strategic, isn't it? When we want something more, we want a bigger house, or we want a nicer car, or we want a bigger bank account. We always compare ourselves by people who have more of it. Right? We're always in the bottom of our comparison bubble. And that's how it happens. And then as soon as you graduate out of that bubble, you create another bubble. Right? That's what we do in our culture. But I think Jesus is also telling them that this, this reality that money can have a unique power of, over us to blind us to this reality in our hearts is that it is so powerful that we need a miraculous intervention. We need something to take place where Jesus can actually reveal this reality to us. It's like when we choose to govern our lives by the law and yet we can still feel like something is missing. That is what's happening with this rich young ruler. You know, according to my peers, God has blessed me for my good deeds and my good works. And yet here I am on my knees before Jesus Christ wondering what am I missing? And if you are anything like me, any time in life where you find yourself performing for something, where you're, trying, where you're trying to earn something. It doesn't matter how well you perform. There's this sort of looming thing in the back of your mind. It's like this emptiness. It's a doubt. It's an insecurity. It's that thing wondering, not if, but when I will fail. Right? And it makes me realize something. What it makes me realize is that we as followers of Jesus, have to live lifestyles of repentance. We have to live lifestyles of changing the way we think, and not just changing the way we think, changing the way we do. 
You know, eventually it gets old in a sense, not old. Imagine if you're married. Imagine if you spent your entire uh, relationship with your spouse just confessing sin. Whew. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Bex and I got married, before we got married, we had this amazing moment in time uh, where we confessed everything to each other. It was like this moment to say, you know what? Before we get married, we are going to clear the air on everything. There is no hidden sin. There is no hidden this. There's no hidden this. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's liberating. But imagine if our entire relationship was built around me just coming and saying, oh, you know, I've just been thinking like what a rotten person I am. I'm just so sorry. You know, I, I just, I'm forgetful. You know, do that for 10 years. And by the end of 10 years, you'll know this about yourself is you know more about yourself and less about your spouse. Why? Because Jesus is not taking this man on a journey of sin consciousness about himself. He's doing that because he knows that unless this man understands his sin, he will not be able to engage Christ in intimacy. And so much of our Christian walk, we don't even realize, is based in performance. Why? Because we're trying to dot our I's and cross our T's. It's like the story of Job. Right? Job would make sure he was doing everything right. His kids would go out and party late at night. And guess what? He was up early next morning making a sacrifice. I just think he's thinking, oh God, my life is good. I don't want to give it up. Right? Oh God, my life is good. I really don't want to give it up. And this is the story of his life. This is the story of how things begin to unfold in him. The devil saying, if he didn't have everything good, would he still serve you? Why? What was happening? The devil was saying that Job is using you, God, as a means to an end. And the rich young ruler is doing the same thing. He's at the feet of Jesus trying to find out, is there one piece of this puzzle that I'm missing? And Jesus is trying to show him that you're building the wrong puzzle. Repentance from sin is super important for us as Christians, but it is not the be end all. It is a part of it. And it gets old. Why? Because God wants us to cross over from being so sin conscious to being God conscious. That's how we operate in relationship with Him. If I just focus on everything I'm doing wrong, I can't even see my wife. The rich young ruler was so focused on everything he was doing right that he couldn't even see Jesus. So, what do we do after we repent of sin? I believe we repent of how we have used the good things in our life in the place of God. If we want intimacy with God, if we want to get over that nagging feeling, if we want to get over the sense that something is still missing, we have to change how we relate to the good things in our life. It's not just about disqualifying ourselves for the things we did wrong. No, it's about allowing the good things to serve him and not using him to try and help us serve the good things. You know, the Bible says the rich man went away sad. In Matthew, it uses a word, the rich man went away grieved. 
And that's a way more profound word to me. Because that Greek word is the same Greek word that is used for Jesus grieved in distress in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat blood. Do you see what's happening here? The same feeling that the rich young ruler had, that sick feeling in his gut of saying, I cannot bear the thought of separation from my wealth. I cannot bear it. Is the same feeling Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane at the thought of being separated from the Father. It's the same word, same Greek word. And that tells us just how deeply entangled this thing was in us. And the, the truth is, when you think about this story, because for some of us, money has no effect. It, you know, the, the idea of being rich, it doesn't matter, right? Maybe it's your family. Maybe money enables you to be obsessed with your family. Maybe money enables you to be obsessed with control. Maybe money enables you to feel like you're a powerful person. But what we can't deny is that the rich young ruler was blind to the power that money had in his life. We don't know if it was because of his prestige. But we do know is that if he had given everything away and followed Jesus, he would have had nothing of his old life. No prestige. Maybe no high ranking in the synagogue and the Sanhedrin. Right? And that was Jesus' challenge to him. Are you able to lay down your identity? Are you able to lay down the thing that has mattered the most to you so that you can come and follow me? And I reckon more Christians than not feel like this rich young ruler. I really do. And what about Peter's response? Then Peter began to speak up. Jesus, we've given everything to follow you. <laughs> I don't know if he's talking in pride or just straight up freaked out. I'll find out later in heaven maybe. But it's like, Jesus, we gave everything up. Is he, is he flexing his muscles and being like, dude, we gave it all up. Like, come on, tell me what we're going to get. Or is he like, that guy wasn't worthy and like, we didn't really have anything to give up. So, you know. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, mothers, brothers, sisters, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. I love Jesus is always pressing at the heart level. Always. It's because the fuel to follow flows from the heart. You can imagine Peter. Jesus, we've given everything. We've given everything. There's nothing left to give. Are we worthy? But for me, the simple takeaway is this is not an invitation into a life of poverty. That's not what Jesus is getting at in this story, right? It's not, it's not just, you know, just give everything away and be poor and do nothing with your life and, you know, be a monk in a mountain. He's, he's really just saying, let go of the thing that's taken hold of you. Let go of it. When you let go of it, it's like the scene in every movie when it's either at the beginning or the end of a movie and someone usually dies, 
right? That's usually what happens. But it's this grip like this. And then all of a sudden, some person goes, and then that's the end, right? It's the beginning of the end. And there's just that slow ga, right? But that is the picture, is letting go of that which has taken hold of us. Is Jesus is saying, can you release? Can you let go? And so many of the things in our lives that hold us are because we're holding back. You know, and Paul preached on this, Andy's hit on this, but, and Paul talked about, take up your cross and follow me. It's like, have you ever tried carrying a cross? It's heavy. Have you ever tried carrying a cross with a hiking backpack on? Right? But so much of this journey of stepping into what God has for us is about taking off what was to step into what is. 1 Corinthians says this, 1 Corinthians 6, You say I am allowed to do anything. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. But not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. The rich young ruler was a master over many, but something had mastered him. Right? And so much of our lives, we say, oh, I can do this. I can do that. I can partake in this. I can partake in that. And it's little things. It doesn't have to be big things. It's not about playing a game of whack-a-mole like, oh, what shows did you watch this week? Right? Did you fast forward that scene? What do you think about legal marijuana? <laughs> doesn't matter, these things. We can, we, can, we can be rich young ruler about them. Are they right? Are they wrong? Let's play it. Let's play it out. Let's debate it. And yet Jesus comes in and just says, why don't you give everything away and come and follow me? And there's no debate left to have. Why? He was so focused on following the rules that he didn't even follow the first one. Have no other God before me. And if he had realized that, it might have broken, broken him down enough to realize he needed help. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I want to close with this passage. You know, the amazing part of this story for me is the ending. It's like Jesus says, okay, you know, rich young ruler, you can follow me. It's available. And he goes away sad and his disciples are distraught and he brings clarity and says, don't you worry. If you've sacrificed for me, you will get it back a hundredfold. And he says, and the last will be first and the first will be last. And you could read and study that passage. What does it mean that the first will be last and the last will be first? There's a lot of great ideas. But I was thinking, okay, if I was a disciple and Jesus had just spoken these words to me, they'd probably still be sitting in my mind because that's the last thing he said in this, in this interaction. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. So why don't you turn with me into Luke 18, or Luke 19. Because after this interaction has taken place, it tell, the Bible tells us that the, the disciples went from there and they were making their way towards Jericho. And Jesus heals a blind beggar. And the story picks up in, in verse 1. 
of chapter 19. It says, as Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save, which was lost. find it so intriguing that these stories are laid out almost beside each other. Rich young ruler, good rapport with everybody. Everybody spoke well of him. Allegedly humble. And then comes and finds Jesus. And then Zacchaeus, who just wants to see Jesus, who knows he's crooked, who knows he's a tax collector? Who knows that he was a was like a chief tax collector? Like he was the cream of the crop in terms of bad people, right? To the point where he wouldn't even push his way through people to see Jesus. Instead, he he sort of did what his he, he had a cunning mind, and he obviously thought, okay, I can project this path. Let me get to that tree and let me get up it so I can see him. Climbs up the tree. Jesus calls him out. But what's incredible to me is that Jesus doesn't say anything about the law. Nothing. We don't know anything about what happened in this story. We know nothing. All we know is that Jesus wanted to spend time with him. And his response to being around Jesus for just a moment was, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Isn't that so interesting? The rich young ruler, Jesus asked him to give all of his possessions. Jesus asked nothing of Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus in his own free will, in his own choice, in his own response to the nature and presence of Jesus says, I will give half of everything I own to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I will repay it four times. And Jesus' response, a declaration and an observation. Today's salvation has come to this house. Reminds me of the passage where Jesus says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Right? I think the encouragement for us this morning on our journey of becoming like Christ is to remember that our measurement tool is not what we've done right. It's not measuring myself according to a law, which we know. But it's more measuring myself according to my love for him, which is a response of his love to me. Because every ounce of fuel that flows out of me to follow him is fueled in love. Amen? I'll leave that with you.